We begin our service with a traditional act of remembrance, and so our call to worship is from John's Gospel, chapter 15. As a father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Our opening hymn is number 389 in the hymn book and the words will also appear on the screen. Our God, our help in ages past. And if you're able, you are invited to stand as we sing. Just a few words of explanation as we come to the act of remembrance. The words will appear on the screen um, and there, is a, there are responses. Hopefully it will be self-evident which are which. Um, at the end of that, we have a PowerPoint slide show that will pull up the names of those from this church 
who gave their lives in World War I and World War II. Our actual official memorials are out in the porch in the old part of the building, so we can't see them. Uh, so it's important to show the names, and we have photographs of those memorials as well. We do invite people, please, if you're able to stand for the two-minute silence, um, and at the end of that, we will sit down and the choir will um, sing some music for us as we continue to reflect. So I invite you, if you are able, to stand with me as we remember. We are in the presence of God. We commit ourselves to work in penitence and faith for reconciliation between the nations, that all people may together live in freedom, justice and peace. We pray for all who in bereavement, disability and pain continue to suffer the consequences of fighting and terror. We remember with thanksgiving and sorrow those whose lives in world wars and conflicts past and present have been given and taken away. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We will remember them.
You can't have missed seeing things on the television, particularly in the last few weeks, reminding us that this is the 70th anniversary of what is called VJ Day. Some people are interested in that, other people aren't interested in that, and both of those are fine. Uh, But I came across a short video clip which seemed to say something quite important. It was produced by the British Legion, um, so obviously there is their nuance to the story that is told. But we're going to share together in watching this short video clip entitled, What is VJ Day? Hello. <laughs> okay, are we all set? Okay, um, are we speeding? Everyone at speed? Okay, whenever you're ready, Jackie. 70 years ago, months after the celebrations in Europe over the German surrender, the Second World War raged on for the British Army of the Far East in Burma, Sri Lanka, India, Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Singapore. I had no idea. I thought, I thought it was actually over. The British and Commonwealth campaign in the Far East was the longest of the Second World War and involved two and a half million troops. Yet these men are often overlooked. Their commander, Viscount Slim, famously said, When you go home, don't worry about what to tell your loved ones and friends about service in Asia. No one will know where you were or what it is you did. You are and will remain the Forgotten Army. Imagine this. So around 300,000 soldiers in the Far East became prisoners of war. And 100,000... 100,000... 100,000 of these died as prisoners. Before seeing it end. Yeah, it's sad and it makes you... Yeah. They suffered atrocious treatment in camps. With food severely rationed and disease rife. Torture and even execution were commonplace. Despite their weakened state, many were forced to construct the now infamous Death Railway. At a cost of more than 12,000 Allied lives, one man for every sleeper laid. Wow. It's crazy. Japan's surrender came in August 1945. Following the devastating use of the first atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So that's, that's the one that we always see, the big atomic... Yeah. Back home in the UK, as victory was announced, thousands gathered in the rain to watch King George VI and the Queen drive down the mall in an open carriage. Buildings all over London were floodlit. And throngs of people crowded the streets of every town and city to celebrate. Soldiers even formed a conga line down Regent Street. But those who fought and suffered in the Far East wouldn't arrive home until well after the victory celebrations were over. Many prisoners of war had to wait months for ships to bring them home. And some Allied troops wouldn't return to the UK for nearly two years after it was over. And they've already been there for God knows how many years. Seventy years later, we remember them all. And the Royal British Legion ensures the memory of their contribution lives on. Lives on. Lives on. Yes, that's what we want.
We're going to sing again, and this is a hymn written by a New Zealand hymn writer who understands something of the complexity of war and the responses of people to it and the traditions in our former allied nations of remembering. And it it gets some of the tension between remembering and commemorating without celebrating. The tune is a very beautiful Scottish tune, Highland Cathedral, and you're invited to stand, if you're able, as we sing together, Honour the Dead, Our Country's Fighting Brave. Traditionally, Remembrance Sunday focuses on those who served in the armed forces and who died. That's a very small proportion of the people affected by war. And one of the things that we have been very much hearing about in the news recently is the crisis of refugees and migrants fleeing from conflict in Syria. And there are lots of things out there that you can look at to tell you something about that. But I came across a little 
video short. Uh, it's done in a kind of cartoon form that just is called The European Refugee Crisis Explained. And it is offered as it is. In the summer of 2015, Europe experienced the highest influx of refugees since the Second World War. Why? The main reason is that Syria has become the world's top source of refugees. Syria is located in the Middle East, an ancient, fertile land settled for at least 10,000 years. Since the 1960s, it's been led by the Al-Assad family, who have ruled it as quasi-dictators until the Arab Spring happened in 2011, a revolutionary wave of protests and conflicts in the Arab world that toppled many authoritarian regimes. But the Assads refused to step down and started a brutal civil war. Different ethnicities and religious groups fought each other in changing coalitions. ISIS, a militaristic jihadist group, used the opportunity and entered the chaos with the goal to build a totalitarian Islamic caliphate. Very quickly, it became one of the most violent and successful extremist organizations on earth. All sides committed horrible war crimes using chemical weapons, mass executions, torture on a large scale, and repeated deadly attacks on civilians. The Syrian population was trapped between the regime, rebel groups, and the religious extremists. A third of the Syrian people have been displaced within Syria, while over 4 million have fled the country. The vast majority of them reside now in camps in the neighboring countries who are taking care of 95% of the refugees, while the Arab states of the Persian Gulf together have accepted zero Syrian refugees, which has been called especially shameful by Amnesty International. The UN and the World Food Programme were not prepared for a refugee crisis on this scale. As a result, many refugee camps are crowded and undersupplied, subjecting people to cold, hunger and disease. The Syrians lost hope that their situation will be getting better anytime soon, so many decided to seek asylum in Europe. Between 2007 and 2014, the European Union had invested about 2 billion euros in defences, high-tech security technology and border patrols, but not a lot in preparation for an influx of refugees. So it was badly prepared for the storm of asylum seekers. In the EU, a refugee has to stay in the state they arrived in first, which put enormous pressure on the border states that were already in trouble. Greece, in the midst of an economic crisis on the scale of the Great Depression, was not able to take care of so many people at once, leading to terrible scenes of desperate, hungry people on islands usually reserved for tourists. The world needed to come together and act as a united front, but instead it has become more divided. Many states downright refused to take in any refugees, leaving the border states alone in their struggle. In 2014, the UK lobbied to stop a huge search and rescue operation called Mare Nostrum that was designed to stop asylum seekers from drowning in the Mediterranean. The idea seems to have been that a higher death toll on the sea would mean fewer asylum seekers trying to make the journey. But of course, in reality, that's not what happened. The perception of the crisis around the world suddenly changed when photos circulated of a dead boy from Syria found lying face down on a beach in Turkey. Germany announced that it will, without exception, accept all Syrian refugees and is now preparing to take in 800,000 people in 2015. More than the entire EU took in 2014, only to impose temporary border controls a few days later and demand an EU-wide solution. All over the West, more and more people are beginning to take action, although support for asylum seekers has mostly come from citizens, not from politicians. But there are fears in the Western world. Islam, high birth rates, crime and the collapse of the social systems. Let's acknowledge this and look at the facts. Even if the EU alone were to accept all 4 million Syrian refugees and 100% of them were Muslims, the percentage of Muslims in the European Union would only rise from about 4% to about 5%. This is not a drastic change and will certainly not make it a Muslim continent. 
A Muslim minority is neither new nor reason to be afraid. Birth rates in many parts of the Western world are low, so some fear asylum seekers might overtake the native population in a few decades. Studies have shown that even though birth rates are higher among Muslims in Europe, they drop and adjust as the standard of living and level of education rises. Most Syrian refugees already are educated. The birth rate in Syria before the civil war was not very high, and the population was actually shrinking, not growing. The fear that refugees lead to higher crime rates also turns out to be wrong. Refugees who become immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than the native population. When allowed to work, they tend to start businesses and integrate themselves into the workforce as fast as possible, paying more into the social system than they extract from them. Syrians coming to the West are potential professional workers, desperately needed to sustain Europe's aging population. Also, refugees traveling with smartphones has led to the misconception that they're not really in need of help. Social media and the internet have become a vital part of being a refugee. GPS is used to navigate the long routes to Europe. Facebook groups give tips and information about obstacles in real time. This only proves that these people are like us. If you had to make a dangerous journey, would you leave your phone behind? The European Union is the wealthiest bunch of economies on earth. Well-organized states with functioning social systems, infrastructure, democracy, and huge industries. It can handle the challenge of the refugee crisis if it wants to. The same can be said for the whole Western world. But while tiny Jordan has taken in over 600,000 Syrian refugees, the UK, which has 78 times the GDP of Jordan, has only said it will allow 20,000 Syrians across its borders over the next five years. The US has agreed to accept 10,000, Australia 12,000 people. Overall, things are slowly getting better, but not fast enough. We are writing history right now. How do we want to be remembered? As xenophobic rich cowards behind fences, we have to realize that these people fleeing death and destruction are no different from us. By accepting them into our countries and integrating them into our societies, we have much to gain. There is only something to be lost if we ignore this crisis. More dead children are sure to wash ashore if we don't act with humanity and reason. Let's do this right and try to be the best we possibly can be. Our, New, our Old Testament reading is taken from Psalm 112. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high in honor. And from the New Testament, chapter, chapter 14 of Mark. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were plotting to arrest Jesus secretly. They wanted to kill him. But not during the feast, they said. The people may stir up trouble. Jesus was in Bethany. He was at the table in the home of Simon, who had a skin disease. A woman came with a special sealed jar. It contained very expensive perfume made out of pure nard. She broke the jar open and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Some of the people there became angry. 
They said to one another, Why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's pay. The money could have been given to poor people. So they found fault with the woman. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have poor people with you. You can help them any time you want to, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body to prepare me to be buried. What I am about to tell you is true. What she has done will be told anywhere the good news is preached all over the world. It will be told in memory of her. We have an opportunity now to continue to explore some of these themes in different ways. Um, This is an all-age service, so you can choose how you would like to spend the next 20 minutes or so. If you are very small and you need to run around, we have an active zone, which is in the crash room at the far end of the corridor, and somebody will guide you to that if you're not sure where it is. If you are feeling creative, we have an opportunity up on the mezzanine to make a memorial that we can display in church because ours are stuck out in the porch thought it might be nice to have an opportunity to create something there we also have some origami up there if you fancy having a go at some peace doves or some hearts and Becca, Emma and Katrina will be facilitating that up on the mezzanine up the stairs there's a discussion zone this is a new thing uh, in the memorial room if you actually feel what you need to do is go and talk about some of the things that we have looked at this morning or, or anything that struck you so far, then just go through to the memorial room out the door and it's straight on your right. Um, and there are a few resources and some Bibles there, but it's, it's a kind of a free space. If you're a kind of person who finds colouring and doodling helpful when you're thinking, um, we've got some colouring and some pens and some pencils and stuff over there, uh, some blank paper and also some more origami if anybody fancies a go at it, but the stairs are a problem Um, or you can stay here and listen to me talk and then lead us in uh, somebody will lead us in prayer at the end of that so don't be afraid to get up and move around Uh, there will be some music to guide us through that Uh, it's around about 20 minutes just to explore the themes in the way that is right for us
When you get home, don't worry what you will tell your loved ones. No one will know where you were and what it is you did. You are and will remain the forgotten army. Wherever the gospel is preached all over the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Names flash across our television screens. Bailey Gwynn, David Phillips, Ailan Kurdi, and many, many more. Fleetingly, we recoil in horror. For a few moments, we pause and ask ourselves tough questions. Why did this happen? What can be done to stop it happening? And then we forget. Or at least I do. There's always another tragedy, another victim of violence, another reporting of fighting or war in some faraway place, and it all threatens to overwhelm us. Names become numbers, numbers become statistics. Statistics become history, and history risks becoming just another tome in a dusty underground archive of a library, unvisited, unread, and unremembered. No one will know, no one will care, and no one will learn unless someone keeps the memory alive. A nameless woman in a small town called Bethany went to a dinner held in the home of a wealthy man called Simon. And Simon, we are told, had a dreaded skin disease, most probably leprosy. And her spontaneous action caused uproar. The self-righteous prigs in that room criticised her outrageous behaviour. How dare she do this? Surely, surely she should have sold the perfume. And given that money to the poor, that would have been a good thing for her to do. Jesus' response is very swift, and it is also very acute. And within it are at least two statements that ought to give us pause for thought. The poor will always be with you. And they are. Not because that's just the way it is, that that's the way the world will always be, but because that's the way societies and nations allow it to be. It's not inevitable, but it happens because even when someone tells the stories, nobody really listens. Nobody keeps the memory alive, and so nothing can change. Traumatised former military personnel have to live with the physical and emotional scars of going to battle, attempting to build lives themselves, sometimes estranged from the very people they love. An awful lot of military marriages seem to end as a result of trauma and changed personality. Bereft families, both civilian and military, 
whose sons and daughters have died for no apparent gain, and all too often it seems in vain, because nothing much changes. Refugees and asylum seekers fleeing persecution, risking everything in the hope of a brighter tomorrow, only to drown in icy cold seas, or if they do reach land, to be treated with suspicion and herded into transit camps. And families on our own doorsteps living hand-to-mouth, fearing benefits actions and cuts, some having to choose between food and heating, some trapped by debts and ensnared by payday loans, some in hostels and bedsits, some sleeping rough in shop doorways. I ask myself, and therefore I ask each of us, have we capitulated to a myth of inevitability that there will always be poor people, that violence is inevitable, that nations do just go to war from time to time, and that persecuted minorities will risk their very lives. I ask myself, and I ask each of us, whether we've heard it so often that it's just wallpaper to our lives, a set of inconvenient truths we perhaps don't choose to ignore, but it's just there in the background and it doesn't strike us anymore. But perhaps there are stories we choose not to tell because if we remember, remembering might make a difference. Jesus also said, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done will be told in memory of her. But it isn't, you know. Not very much. I can remember when I was at Vicar School learning to be a minister, sitting in a theology class, and the tutor said to a group of around about 20 students, this is what Jesus said. What's the context? And most of us hadn't got a clue. I was the swatty one, I did know. But most people didn't know. A lifetime of listening to sermons and going to Sunday school, and they couldn't place this quote in context. Because the reality is the woman and her story have not been told where the gospel is preached. For the most part, the church has forgotten her. Even the evangelist who writes the story knows her only as a woman. She has no name. She's just another insignificant person in the sweep of history. Like the conscripts and volunteers who were sent to the Far East, no one knows about her. Just as they were the forgotten army, so she's a forgotten character in the gospel, in the story of God's good news in Jesus. Seventy years on, someone made a decision to resurrect the memory of the forgotten army, to tell again something of the story of the men who remained on the far side of the planet in a living hell, whilst the majority of folk back home celebrated victory. A conga line down the mall, while others are dying of hunger. 
Two and a half million troops. I'm not great when I just see lots of numbers. They're not very meaningful to me. But that's roughly half the number of people who live in Scotland. That's how many people were out in the Far East. And of those, around about 300,000, that's roughly the number of people who live in Cardiff, were prisoners. And of those prisoners, one in three, 100,000 men, roughly the population of Londonderry, would die. Huge numbers of people largely forgotten about. But if we think that's bad, and it is, the Syrian refugee crisis affects even more people. There's an estimated 4 million people of all ages who have fled from that country and even more are displaced within it. Now, that is a lot more than the number of people who live in Wales. It's kind of halfway between Wales and Scotland population. A heck of a lot of people. And it's hard to find accurate figures, and they keep changing. But during the summer months of this year, around about 2,500 of them died trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea to reach Europe. We don't know their names. We don't know how old they are. We don't know their stories. They risk being more forgotten people. And beyond that, there are all the other areas of the world we don't hear about, or indeed never hear about. Places where violence and oppression, poverty and disease and natural disaster continue to happen. Countless thousands, no, millions, maybe billions of people whose stories will never be told to us, never mind remembered by us. In the short video we saw about the Syrian refugee crisis, the narrator said this, we're writing history right now. How do we want to be remembered? And I think that's a vital question for us to ponder this Remembrance Sunday. Because 70 years from now, someone might decide to write the story of the Syrian refugee crisis. Someone might want to write about the so-called war on terror. Someone might want to tell the story of how the poorest and most vulnerable people in our own towns and cities were treated. Are these the forgotten army of our day? Have we got so busy delighting in outcomes that work to our own advantage, that secure our freedoms or desires, that we wind up forgetting those just beyond our view? I found it a very sobering thought when I realised that 70 years from now, almost everybody in this room will have gone. A few of the children will be elderly, maybe living in care homes, maybe being visited for home communions or whatever. But 70 years from now, how will the story of our nation be told But actually, how will the story of our church be told? When Bonnie and Freya and Lewis and uh, Carl and all the other youngsters look back on their childhood and their youth and recall our story, 
What will they tell? Do you think it will be worth remembering? How will it be worth remembering? What kernel of good news, of gospel values lived out will they be able to tell of us? Because in the same way as the names of Ilan Kurdi, David Phillips, and Bailey Gwynn will soon pass from our conscious memories, I'm afraid so will ours from those who follow us. But if we tell the stories, if we keep the memory alive, then maybe, just maybe, it will make a difference. And maybe one day the poor won't always be with us because we will have worked out what gospel really means. And maybe one day there really will not be any more war because finally we have learned to live together in peace. And maybe we do dare to believe the promise of scripture that in the renewed heaven and earth, at the end of time, but for which we work here and now, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For these things have passed away. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Isn't that the hope in all that darkness of, oh, it's all so complicated, which it is, and it's, it's all so hard, that one day... Death and mourning and crying and pain and sin will be gone forever. And God's dwelling will be among people. We're writing history right now. How do we want to be remembered? Wherever the gospel is preached, what has done will be told in memory of us. We remain seated as we sing a reflective song.
Brothers and sisters, let us pray. On this morning, when we have stood united in loving silence to remember and mourn and honour those lost or injured or displaced or bereaved by the destructive forces of war, we humbly raise our prayers to you, the God who heals all wounds, wipes away all tears, forgives and loves all humankind, whether they be perceived by our eyes as friend or foe, the God who takes no sides but weeps for all. We pray, Lord, that at this time, when our weary world is racked yet again by wasteful, senseless conflict, when refugees wander the lonely road seeking sanctuary, when once prosperous cities crumble and burn, when fruitful lands are transformed into barren wildernesses creating famine where once there was plenty. We pray you use us, those deemed powerless, to heal divisions, teach us understanding of others, show us the way of reconciliation, remind us of the futility of seeming victory. The great King David, we are told, lost one of his sons, who had led an armed rebellion against his rule. When David heard of his loss, he did not celebrate, dance with joy and proclaim, I have won, I have won. Instead, he wept and cried out in grief, My son, my son, if only I had died for you. A cry echoing down the centuries and voiced by many parents who see in the death of a precious loved one only an ending to all their hopes, a waste of the future. A cry our Lord Jesus, who thought of us all as his friends, his children, understood when he said the greatest love a person can have for his friends is to give his life for them. And he did. A cry God understood and answered when he sacrificed his own son in the incarnation of Jesus to take away the power of death and restore hope of a new life to come for the sons and daughters of all. So God... We pray for reassurance that there will indeed come a time when disputes will be settled amicably by discussion amongst the nations, when weapons will be hammered into tools of peace and humankind will never again go to wars of conquest and religion and politics and race, but instead will unite to fight famine, ignorance, disease, prejudice, and injustice. Help us, dear God, to make each day an act of remembrance, 
in order that we, the people of all nations, all faiths, all political persuasions, will remember to work together to achieve that glorious day when we can stand before our Lord and say, the world you gave us, the people you gave us, are safe in our hands. The blood of the innocents, the blood of our Lord Jesus, has not been shed in vain. For at long last we have learned the folly of war. We remember. All this we ask in the name of that same Lord Jesus who cried out in his agony on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amen.
as well as our financial offering, we have the memorials that have been created for us, which we can display later. But you might like to come and have a look at them after the service. So let's just commit our offering to God in prayer. Let's pray. Loving God, as we have prayed for peace and pledged ourselves again to work towards a world characterised by peace, a world in which we can welcome the stranger, a world in which fear and hate have no place. So we offer these gifts of money and these gifts of remembrance and ask that they be employed to that end. In the name of Christ. Amen. When I was getting ready for the service, I had this rather crazy idea that I would give everybody some poppy seeds to take away. Uh, It's not that easy to get poppy seeds, and when you do get them, they are so tiny that probably the postman wonders quite what he's delivering to you, these little plastic bags with um, dust in them. I managed to divide them up between 29 envelopes. I'm kind of hoping we can manage to get around about one per household if we give them out. Um, And I'm wondering if some of the youngsters would like to just uh, take those and hand them round to people. Would you like to just take? People like to take the basket. So if each, that's a one. I think people will know if they're in the same family as each other. Do you want to just walk round with that? Would you like to do that? If you don't want to, it's fine. I'll get somebody. Would you do it for me, Carl? Thank you. So one per family as we go round. (laughs) Hopefully it will just be enough. And make sure that all the visitors get some for their families as well. Uh, and the idea is that you can just take these away. There's some red poppy seeds. There are some white poppy seeds. Um, and at some point, when it's appropriate, you can just scatter those, and they will hopefully grow up as a sign of hope. And while Carl's, Carl is handing those out for us, we will sing together our final hymn for the healing of the nations. Lord, we pray with one accord.
those who didn't get copies, it's lovely to have the place so full that we, we run out of envelopes. Uh, maybe some of the home people can make sure all the visitors get one before they go. Let's join together in the World Peace Prayer as we end our service together. Lead us from death to life, from falsehood to truth. Lead us from despair to hope, from fear to trust. Lead us from hatred to love.